Good evening and a very warm welcome to the inaugural lecture of Professor Am Bauerkemper, our new Gata Henkel visiting professor. My name is Andreas Gessig, I'm the director of the German Historical Institute, but the visiting professorship is held jointly by the uh, German Historical Institute and the London School of Economics and Political Science. And on behalf of all my colleagues from the LSE, I would also like to welcome you here this evening. Uh, and the visiting professorship combines uh, teaching at the Department of International History of the LSE and uh, gives time to conduct a research project and the visiting professor has two offices, one at the LSE and one at the German Historical Institute. And it's the ninth time that we can uh, welcome a new Gerda Henker uh, visiting professor. And for the continuing support, we are very greatly indebted to the Gerda Henker Foundation. Unfortunately, the representative of the foundation, Dr. Angela Kühnel, who normally comes to these events had to uh, cancel her participation last night to, due to a family emergency and uh, so I have to welcome her in absentia and wish her and her family all the best. Uh, perhaps a few words on the Geta Henkel Foundation. I repeat them, uh, some, uh, but I think uh, I have said that before at occasions, but I think uh, it's uh, still um, important to see that the Geta Henkel Foundation is, for, at least in our German context, uh, unique in the sense that it concentrates all its considerable funding to support academic research in the humanities. Uh, it's not across board, it's just simply on the humanities. It supports primarily um, projects in the field of archaeology, history, historical Islamic studies, art history, history of law and uh, prehistory. And the foundation was established in 1976 by Lisa Maskell to commemorate her mother, Geta Henkel. And both women, Lisa Maskell and Geta Henkel, were artists in their own right. And the foundation is really a wonderful asset for the, to the humanities in Germany and also, as we can see here, internationally. And we would like both institutions, LSE and uh, German Historical Institute, like to thank the Gerda Henkel Foundation for their generous uh, funding uh, of this visiting <coughs> professorship. And it's now my great pleasure, and I hope this uh, microphone will not disturb us too much, otherwise I'll turn it off. Um, uh, it's now my great pleasure to introduce this evening's uh, main speaker, Professor Ant Bauerkemper. Uh, Ant Bauerkemper holds a professorship uh, in 19th and 20th century history at the Free University of Berlin, and his work covers a wide range of topics. He started uh, with his PhD uh, with British history, he, Ant Baukemp, received his uh, PhD from Bielefeld University for a dissertation on the radical right in Britain, nationalist, anti-Semitic and fascist movement in Britain from the late 19th century to 1945, um, the radicale rechte in Großbritannien, and international fascism uh, remained one of his main uh, fields of research. 
in 2006, he published a, an impressive overview of the fascist movements in Europe, uh, 1918 to 1945. And in 2012, and moving on uh, in time and historiographic trends, a monograph, Contested Memories, Remembering National Socialism, Fascism and War in Europe since 1945. Das umstrittene Gedächtnis, Erinnerung an Nationalsozialismus, Faschismus und Krieg in Europa. Another field of his uh, research came with his Habilitation, his second book, Another, sorry, sorry about this. Another field uh, of research came with his Habilitation, his second book, and his work at the Center of Contempt for Contemporary History in Potsdam, and it was on rural society in West Germany, and in particular uh, in the GDR. His Habilitation shift was on, um, was on traditional, uh, tradition and change in rural um, Brandenburg between 1945 and the early 1960s. Um, and it was followed then by a, another monograph, a textbook on the social history of the GDR and numerous papers in academic journals and other and volumes on the history of the GDR and on comparative East and West German history. More recently, Anne Barkember added yet another large, even larger field of research um, to his portfolio, the relationship of democracy and civil society in Europe and beyond in the 20th century. This encompasses uh, work on philanthropic movements and societies in Germany, Europe and the US, but also globally as we will see in this evening's lecture, which is devoted to one particular aspect of this wide uh, research, namely security and uh, humanity the, uh, in the First World War, the treatment of civilian uh, enemy aliens in belligerent states. And Bauerkemper has a, a, a really impressive history, also an incredible capacity and expertise in conducting comparative research. Uh, for many years he was the executive director of the Berlin Kolleg for Comparative History of uh, European Societies, Berliner Kolleg für Vergleichende Gesellschaftsgeschichte Europas. He continued his, uh, its research agenda in new formats after this program ran out and has inspired a large number of PhD thesis and graduate work in this uh, area, training them basically doing comparative uh, history. He organized many conferences on topics of comparative history and has a, a really impressive res uh, publication records and scholarly papers, conference volumes in this area. So without much further ado, we really feel very honored to have you here, to have such a distinguished scholar here with us Welcome again, um, and now we are greatly looking forward to your 
lecture and a discussion, short discussion afterwards. Uh, is that acoustically all right? And then we leave the microphone off to avoid further bangs. for your kind introduction tonight. Uh, uh, I'm also grateful to, for the support from the Gerda Hinkel Foundation, of course. This has been, support has been essential, you know, for my stay in the German Historical Institute and uh, at the Institute of International History of the London School of Economics and Political Science. And I, it has been a pleasure to to work in the key institutions. Uh, I've seen a number of my students uh, in the audience, so I'm grateful to everybody of you for coming uh, along tonight and attending uh, my lecture. On the 27th of October 2017, so almost exactly a month ago, Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull announced that his coalition government had lost their parliamentary majority. The reason was simple. Barnaby Joyce, the leader of the National Party, had to abandon his seat in Parliament because he was a citizen of Australia and New Zealand. According to Section 44 of Australia's Constitution of 1901, however, Australians who hold dual citizenship are not eligible to the House of Representatives and the Senate. The section, section 44, is directed against any, quote, person who is under any acknowledgement of allegiance, obedience, or adherence to a foreign power, or is a subject, or a citizen, or entitled to the rights or privileges of a subject or citizen of a foreign power." Unquote. In the following days and weeks, some more members of Australia's parliament realized that they, had, that they held dual citizenships. And as a result, Turnbull created a minority government. He has announced to oblige all members of parliament to prove that they had renounced any foreign citizenship to which they might be entitled. This recent event indicates the long reach of citizenship expectations created in the years before the First World War and shaped by fears of hostile foreign nationals, spies, potential at least, spies. In 1901, Section 44, that only reflected the predominant policy of white Australia, as it was called at the time, but also the widespread xenophobia that had led to the immigration, Australia's Immigration Restriction Act of 1901. Fears of espionage, treason, and subversion that increased in almost all major states in the early 20th century reached unprecedented heights in the First World War. And these emotions were not without any rationale. After all, the German Reichstag, the parliament, had lifted 
the 10-year rule for the citizenship of Germans who lived abroad on the 22nd of July 1913. According to the new law, Germans were granted lifelong citizenship, even Germans living in foreign countries. In those countries that had seen a sizable German immigration since the late 18th century, the new regulation, regulation heightened fears of split loyalties, treason, and subversion. These fears were to become powerful emotional forces and sometimes pretexts in the treatment of foreign nationals in the belligerent states from 1914 to 1980. These xenophobic concerns manifested themselves in the total war that the First World War became. Superseding the division between combatants and non-combatants, as well as between the front, front line and home, this war involved soldiers and civilians alike. In fact, the term home front testifies to the blurring of the previous distinction. Fears, anxieties, and scares were the flip side of national pride, conceptions of honor, and even jingoism. They constituted emotional communities to take up Barbara Rosenwein's concept. Emotional communities that combined comprehensive inclusion and mobilization with uncompromising exclusion of so-called foes, enemies. Under the impact of total war, only remnants of civil society and humanitarianism prevailed in major European states and in the United States and states of the empire, dominions of it. In fact, governments and nationalist populists unleashed violence even against unarmed civilians, as I'm going to demonstrate. Taking the treatment of civilian internees as an example, my talk aims to highlight the advancement of concerns about so-called national security as a genuine concern, an argument, or even a pretext for vested interests and particular aims in the, in the total First World War. Citizens of antagonistic states and minorities were subjected to rigorous surveillance, at least, but also internment or even extermination. This policy complemented the mobilization and utilization of all material and human resources for warfare. Not least, propaganda campaigns denounced so-called enemies within in order to keep up war morale and provide an outlet for civilians' zeal to participate in the war. The so-called enemy aliens, foreign nationals and even naturalized citizens became victims of both an oppressive policy from above and populist xenophobia from below. Against this background, not only foreign nationals, but also minorities that seem to be prepared to collaborate with the enemy were suspected 
and suppressed. In particular, civilian internees appeared as an innovation of the First World War as the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross, Gustave Adorno, emphasized in 1917. In general, civilians in foreign countries were not protected by international treaties or conventions during the First World War. Nevertheless, some international and national non-governmental institutions, as well as critics of security policies, defended basic standards of humanitarianism. Although these critics of the obsession with national security were largely silenced and sidelined during the First World War, they effectively appealed to the government's own interests, even in the short run. Pointing to the danger of reprisals, in particular, liberals and humanitarian organizations exploited the principle of reciprocity that rulers had to take into account. In a long-term perspective, these associations and their representatives contributed to improving the status of civilian internees in international law, paving the way to the Geneva Conventions of 1949, which were ultimately to protect civilians in belligerent states. So after this, this brief introduction, I will deal with the treatment of enemy aliens and minorities, in particularly any so-called enemy aliens uh, in the First World War. And then the next section is devoted to a brief discussion of the role of relief and aid from international and non-governmental organizations, so the role of humanitarianism, uh, to cut a long, long story short, before I come to a conclusion on the relationship between humanitarianism and uh, the doctrine of national security. In the official mind, this is the section two now, in the official mind, as well as in the eyes of large sections of the population, foreign nationals, but also dissidents and some minorities, were at least a potential fifth column of spies and saboteurs. The term fifth column, by the way, was not known at the time. It was coined as late as 1936 in the Spanish. Civil. Against the backdrop of these fears of subversion and treason, conspiracy theories proliferated in almost all belligerent states on both sides. <coughs> As a corollary, demands for national security gained legitimacy and urgency, starting with efforts to deprive enemy states of male civilians as potential soldiers. Nationalist politicians as well as so-called concerned civilians and citizens pressured governments and state authorities to control the mobility of the potential traders, seize their possessions and return them. As rumors about so-called hidden hands spread, especially in the face of 
major military defeats. Military commanders and political elites in particular took measures that were to protect national security and prevent treason and subversion. Government justified these harsh measures by highlighting the obligation to protect the majority of citizens in a total war and thereby stabilize the home front. They also legitimized these measures by pointing to similar mother measures taken against their own citizens in the other states, in the other belligerent states. <laughs> Needless to say, security agencies exploited concerns about treason and espionage for their own vested interests. Yet repressive policies restricted basic rights such as freedom of speech, assembly, and mobility. In particular, they affected the treatment of prisoners of war, but also civilian foreign nationals and minorities. Among the groups that were targeted, prisoners of war were fairly well, if by no means comprehensively, protected. As early as 1863, uh, the Lever Code had obliged the troops of the North American states to treat prisoners of war from the Confederate States humanely in the bloody American Civil War. The Geneva Convention of 1864 confirmed this provision. Even more detailed regulations on prisoners of war were passed by the conferences that took place at The Hague in 1899 <coughs> and 1907. By contrast, the Hague Convention did not contain any explicit provisions on the treatment of civilians who were citizens of opposing states, apart from protecting them in war zones. Moreover, the implementation of the basic norms of international law remained in the hands of sovereign national governments which had rejected any binding restrictions at the Hague. As soon as war was declared in 1914, the primacy of military victory and national security there were, therefore subjected civilian animals to harsh restrictions that governments and the military promptly imposed on them. In multi-ethnic empires, in particular minorities that were suspected of working for the enemy were targeted as well. Measures taken against these groups ranged from isolation to first work, deportation and internment in camps, in the case of the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire, <coughs> repression even peaked in outright <coughs> genocide. As belligerent states declared a state of <coughs> exception at the beginning of the war, or all, sorry, all belligerent states declared a state of exception at the beginning of the war, reinforcing executive powers, emergency laws, and extraordinary decrees allowed the authorities to restrict basic human rights of enemy aliens and domestic opponents to the war. Most commonly, police and military authorities were empowered to arrest and intern enemy aliens without quite frequently without any charge or even without warrants. The, the internment of civilians was a particularly harsh measure, violated 
basic principles of humanity. In Germany alone, 112,000 of these internees were registered during the war. Most of them had been deported from the occupied territories in Western and Eastern Europe. Over the course of the First World War, German authorities recruited or forced 100,000 Belgians, Belgian and French citizens, to work in the Reich or the occupied territories. In the United Kingdom, the number of interned civilians amounted to 32,000 in mid-1950. Two years later, 36,000 German and Austrian enemy aliens were held captive in camps, and 24,000 of them were still interned at the end of the war. In France, the authorities seized 60,000 Germans, Austrians and Hungarians, and brought them to camps. In Romania, 4,000 Germans, as well as citizens of Austria-Hungary, and 1,000 Bulgarians had been arrested by 1960. Authorities of the Russian Empire held 300,000 citizens of the Central Powers and Russian Germans, that is, citizens of the Tsarist Empire, as captives. In Britain, invasion scares, rumors about espionage and fears of subversion had spread since the turn of the century. Starting in 1910, a subcommittee of the Committee of Imperial Defense had prepared the internment of civilian enemy aliens in the case of a war. Taking up those plans, the Liberal government of Prime Minister Herbert Asquith introduced the Defense of the Realm legislation into Parliament, which passed the bills with broad support on the 8th of August 1914. According to the Aliens Restriction Act, which had been enforced five days earlier, all citizens of enemy states living on the British Isles had to register with the police. Moreover, they were not to live or enter any war zones where they seemed to pose a security risk, particularly on the east coast of the British Isles. Police constables had arrested around about 12,000 foreign nationals by the 12th of November 1940. Among them, 8,600 Germans and 3,700 citizens of the Habsburg Empire. After a German submarine had torpedoed the ocean liner Lusitania on the 7th of May 1914, Germans were attacked in large-scale riots following accusations and defamations in the popular press. This article in particular, I mean, published in May 1915, clear out the Germans, save the people. Goal is the home for the Hun in wartime. You can see, you know, riots, you know, and uh, attacks on Germans. Usually shops were looted in in some big cities like London, but also some Scottish cities. The editor of the weekly John Bull, Horatio Bottomley, demanded, quote, a vendetta against every German in Britain 
whether naturalized, in inverted comma, separate, or not. End of quote. As he claimed, quote, you cannot naturalize an unnatural beast, a human abortion, a hellish freak, but you can exterminate it. And now the time has come, unquote, as these rather drastic, of course, example, an exceptional example, demonstrates emotives, to take up William Reddy's concept, reflected and heightened hostility and xenophobia. Ministers showed themselves impressed by the populist and nationalist propaganda. On the 13th of May 1915, so a few days after the Lusitania had been torpedoed, Asquith ordered to intern all non-naturalized male Germans, Austrians, and Hungarians who were liable to military service in their home countries. <coughs> Women, children, and invalids were to be expelled immediately. Contrary to the British government, the German authorities had not comprehensively prepared the internment of civilians. Only when war began, or became likely, on the 31st of July 1914, the government took advantage of the law on the stage of siege that had been passed in Prussia as early as 1851. This law provided the German emperor and the commanders of 62 military territories with comprehensive executive powers. They imposed martial law that restricted the freedoms of expression and assembly more comprehensively than in Britain. Enemy aliens, indigenous minorities, and dissidents, especially socialists and pacifists, were subjected to military justice that was based on 40 extraordinary courts established by the military commanders. Authorities were given a free hand to arrest members of all groups that seemed to endanger domestic <coughs> Oops. Seen, has it to be seen a kind, kind of protest anyway? <laughs> Hopefully not the only intervention. Authorities were given a free hand to arrest members of all groups that seemed to endanger security or domestic security in the war without specific charges, hearings, and chance to appeal. These governmental measures were fueled by nationalist mobilization and large-scale populist propaganda. In October 1914, the Reich Ministry of the Interior, as well as the, Russian, the Prussian Ministry, of war and the interior, and the German Admiralty decided to intern all male Britons aged 17 to, 9, to 50, 55. Only women, children, the elderly, pastors, and priests were exempted. That is, this decision was influenced by the internment of German citizens in Britain and France and early riots against them in those two countries. Britain had ignored the German ultimatum to, to set all interned Germans free by the 5th of November 1940. As a consequence, British civilians were arrested and taken 
to the camp of Ruling close to Berlin. So this is the camp of Ruling. In particular for civilian so-called enemy aliens and this was the camp for the British civilians. A similar camp in Holzminden on the river Weser was set up for French civilians. This interrelationship between internment in Germany and the United Kingdom highlights cross-border perceptions and reactions, and of course it highlights the principle of reciprocity, if you like, tit for tat. In France, too, citizens of, the, of Germany and the Habsburg Empire were largely perceived as security risks. Apart from these potential spies and traitors, however, criminals and so-called asocial elements were interned in French camps. Two. All in all, 45,000 German, Austrian and Hungarian civilians had been arrested by the end of 1915. However, the French authorities proved unable to clearly identify the loyalties of citizens of the multi-ethnic Habsburg monarchy, in particular the Poles, the Czechs and the Slovaks. Moreover, the French authorities placed many Al Alsatians and uh, Iranians under police surveillance as they suspected them of pro-German loyalties. Only those who had clearly committed themselves to France, for instance by serving in the French army, were exempted from these oppressive measures in the border region to Germany. In the Habsburg Empire, security policies were not only directed against citizens of war enemies, but also against ethnic minorities, which were charged with support for Russia or Italy. As early as the 27th of August 1940, a special surveillance authority, the Kriegsüberwachungsamt, had ordered local police officers to intern individuals that seemed to pose a risk to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire and impede its war effort. Apart from these internees, wealthy suspects were confined to specific villages or communities, thereby restricting their mobility without putting them into camps. This distinction between confinement and internment is a special feature of the treatment of enemy aliens in Austria-Hungary. Against the backdrop of a successful offensive by Russian armies in late 1940 and early 1950, spy hysteria mounted in the Habsburg Empire. It was feared by fears of military defeat, in particular minorities such as the Ukrainian Russians, the so-called Ruthenes, who were widely stigmatized as supporters of the Russian war effort, were subjected to random internment. They were held captive captive in camps like Talarov close to Graz, without indictment and trial. After Italy had entered the war in May 1915, on the side of the Autonne, of course, the Austrian government ordered to intern all citizens of that country too. When the multi-ethnic 
Habsburg Empire faced collapse, the new emperor, Charles I, finally decreed a general examination of civilian internment in 1917. As a result of these inquiries, many interned civilian aliens were set free or transferred from internment to confinement. Yet, they were still banned from military operation zones. According to the view of the powerful generals, this restrictive measure, measure was to avert any security risk for Austrian soldiers and civilians. Like Britain, the government, the Council of Ministries, and the authorities of Tsarist Russia had taken precautionary measures against civilian foreign nationals even before the First World War broke out. Four days before partial mobilization on the 25th of July 1914, General Mikhail Baliev ordered to arrest all men of foreign citizenship who were able to serve as soldiers. As a result, the Russian authorities immediately interned 50,000 of the altogether 600,000 civilian enemy aliens. When German and Austrian, Austrian Hungarian armies broke through the Russian front line in the Battle of Golice Town in May 1915, the Tsarist authorities imposed restrictive measures, even more restrictive measures, on all Germans and citizens of Austria Hungary. In the following weeks and months, that is in the summer of 1915, Members of minorities, too, were now generally suspected of disloyalty, were deported from territories close to the front line. In cities, too, spies and saboteurs, or suspected spies and saboteurs, suffered repression. Yet these so-called traitors were publicly as these, sorry, as these traitors were publicly stigmatized and rumors about espionage and sabotage abounded, xenophobia spread like wildfire in Tsarist Russia. In the spring of 1950, some Russians even claimed to have identified German warplanes in the skies over Siberia, which was, of course, technically impossible. <laughs> but this, you know, testifies to the power of these, you know, completely unfounded rumors. And of course, they reflected the anxieties in these societies. Against the backdrop of these fears of military defeat, riots against Germans, Austrians, and Hungarians escalated to random, to random lootings in Russia. In St. Petersburg, which had been renamed Petrograd as early as August 1914, and Moscow, Activists of civil society, <coughs> even activists of civil society, the so-called Achenovost, <coughs> promoted the nationalist and xenophobic campaign that the Council of Ministers had initiated in 1940. Large-scale campaign against enemy aliens was to strengthen war morale, demonstrate the Tsarist Empire's determination to fight on to its Western allies in the Entente. Not least, the punitive policies vis-a-vis -vis the enemy aliens were to dispel any doubts among the Slavs 
of the Habsburg Empire about Russia's solidarity with them and support for them. Unexpectedly, however, the Russian authorities temporarily lost control of the campaign against the enemy aliens. The riots that shook Moscow in May 1915 were similar to the unrest that had been directed against Germany or Germans, Britain a few days before. And some transnational perceptions, at least perceptions, are likely, though not directly documented. Yet the Council of Ministers failed to harness <coughs> the xenophobic protests to their official policy of war mobilization. In fact, the populist and national propaganda agitation against enemy aliens ultimately turned against the rulers and thereby backfired. Appealing to the widespread Russian nationalism in civil society and encouraging the formation of new break in the new patriotic organizations, the Russian Council of Ministers involuntarily contributed to the breakup of the multi-ethnic Tsarist Empire. The abdication of, of Tsar Nicholas I in February 1917, which was to be followed by the installment of a liberal government and ultimately the Bolshevik Revolution in October, rapidly advanced the demonization of suspected internal foes. Yet violence was no longer primarily directed against prisoners of war and civilian internees that represented about 5% of the empire's population in 1970. The chaos of revolution, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk of March 1918, and civil war set many captives free. Class differentiation increasingly overshadowed the previously dominant ethnic and national cleavages. Altogether, internment violated the standards of humanity that widely, that had been widely accepted by 1914, at least for Europeans. Yet research on the emergence of camps in the non-European world has indicated that these practices originated in the non-European. My project will therefore include the internment of civilians in the colonies of the major belligerent powers. There's no time to elaborate on this tonight, but of course, I'd be happy to discuss this. Well, let me turn to the, the second part, which will be brief. Relief and aid from international and national non-governmental organizations. So this is the other side of the story. Despite the strong, the often strong bonds to the governments of the belligerent states, the International Committee of the Red Cross, as well as similar non-governmental organizations, such as the Quakers Society of Friends of Foreigners in Distress in London, as well as liberal politicians and pacifists, such as Ludwig Quidde, in Germany and Bertrand Russell in Britain, repeatedly criticized the frequently inhumane treatment of civilian enemies and the random internment of these persons, of these foreign nationals, in camps. They demanded to lift 
punitive measures and they fought for relief. As early as 1914, the International Committee of the Red Cross established an international information agency in Geneva that passed news about POWs and civilian internees to their relatives. The Agence Internationale des Prisonniers de Guerre, as this agency was called, which was directed by, the, by Frédéric Ferrier and had recruited no less than 1,200 female, mostly female, volunteers by the end of 1914, received between 2,000 and 3,000 inquiries every day during the war years. In the last weeks before the ceasefire of 11th of November 1918, the agency had to cope with a daily workload of no less than 15,000 to 18,000 requests. This is um, the view of the office, of the main office, the registry really. You can see all these, you know, cue cards and so on. The files of this agence eventually comprised 4.9 million cue cards with personal information. The organization also succeeded in obtaining lists of prisoners from the belligerents. Moreover, the information agency published reports about camps that had been inspected by committees of the International Committee of the Red Cross. The agence organized aid for the captured soldiers and interned civilians, especially parcels with much needed provisions, such as food and clothing. Up to the end of 1915, this agency of the International Committee of the Red Cross sent almost 15.9 packets to prisoners of war and internees. Postal exchange also provided relief and distraction, thereby preventing or at least alleviating <coughs> the barbed wire disease that had that was diagnosed by Swiss uh, medicine uh, by Swiss medicine in 1980. Like the punitive measures, however, relief was ultimately based on the principle of reciprocity between nation states. International non-governmental organizations were merely able to encourage and facilitate human aid in the first world. So they were not able to force sovereign national states to participate in these measures. Within the nation states, too, civic organizations and citizens groups protested against the internment of civilian enemy aliens. In Germany, the Bund Neues Vaterland in Bologna demanded to treat citizens of foreign states humanely. It also demanded to promote understanding between warring nations and to pursue transparent foreign policy. The association, which was renamed the Deutsche Liga for Menschenrechte, German League for Human Rights, in 1922, collaborated with the Quaker-led Friends Emergency Committee of the assistance of Germans, Austrians, and Hungarians in distress in London. Founded by Swiss internationalist Elizabeth Rotten in October 1914, the committee, the Friends Emergency Committee, 
Herr des Thermischen Branch in Berlin, die Auskunfts- und Hilfsstelle für Deutsche im Ausland und Ausländer in Deutschland. Funded by philanthropists such as Abi Warburg, Watson's agency also cooperated with the American <coughs> Men's Christian Association, the YMCA, in providing relief for civilian internees. The YMCA was engaged in inspecting camps, especially in Russia and Germany, which the International Committee of the Red Cross did not gain access to. Moreover, the Quakers and their Friends Emergency Committee tackled the plight of the arrested enemy aliens. Represented by Pope Benedict XV, the Vatican also attempted to reduce the burden on the lives of, this, of the interned civilians, not least women's organizations, such as the International Women's Relief Committee in Britain, contributed to the relief effort. Altogether, the, cha the challenges of relief and aid for civilian internees promoted collaboration and networking between pacifist and humanitarian organizations that had campaigned for peace as early as before the beginning of the First World. Apart from providing relief, these associations successfully exerted moral pressure, at least moral pressure, on the national governments that had to justify their policies. The International Committee of the Red Cross, in particular, successfully lobbied for the recognition of psychic illnesses, such as the aforementioned barbed wire disease, that resulted from long-term and boring internment. Yet, the power of international organizations, humanitarian organizations, ultimately proved limited. The battles disrupted contacts and cooperation, impeded cooperation between most humanitarian and liberal associations and societies. Their cross-border relations ultimately founded on the rock of radical nationalism that opened international cooperation to the damaging charge of disloyal behavior or even subversion and treason. By and large, national sovereignty and security trumped civil society and humanitarian concerns. National and international organizations <coughs> that supported interned civilians and prisoners of war had to strike a balance <coughs> between the need for neutrality and the humanitarian mission. The International Committee of the Red Cross, for example, had to take the policies of their national sections into account, as they were largely independent from the central organization in Geneva. For example, the German Red Cross was primarily engaged in relief for Germans. Moreover, most civic organizations supported the national war effort. The official activities of governments and civic engagement by non-governmental organizations were by no means exclusively opposed to each other, but frequently interrelated. All in all, the demands of national security and the principle of national sovereignty prevailed over the basic human rights of civilian foreign nationals who were largely 
equated with captured soldiers. As the warring states seem to fight for the survival as sovereign nations, conspiracy theories and xenophobia abounded against the backdrop of these feelings of insecurity, perceived inner foes became the target of anxieties and scares. Strong emotions seem to demand stringent measures against much hated enemies, so-called enemies within. And better safe than sorry was the order of the day. Undoubtedly, humanitarian organizations encouraged and promoted agreements about the treatment of foreign citizens and they succeeded in restricting reprisals taken against prisoners of war and civilian internees. Yet they remained weak vis-a-vis -vis the governments of the various nation states that held civilian foreign nationals as hostages. Even some prisoners of war and civilian internees themselves justified reprisals as long as they were directed against civilian enemy aliens, so other civilians. Let me come to the conclusion. As the repression of innocent civilian enemy aliens in general and their internment in particular demonstrates, the First World War was a major disaster of violence and extremism. <coughs> Firstly, it redefined the relationship between national security and humanity. Under the restrictive conditions of war, national and international humanitarian organizations could only alleviate the plight of prisoners of war and interned civilians. In particular, the International Committee of the Red Cross at least occasionally succeeded in putting pressure on the warring states by appealing to the governments to comply with basic standards of humane treatment. As the rulers of the belligerent countries aimed to win over public opinion in neutral states and sought to avoid reprisals against their own citizens, this strategy was repeatedly successful. In the propaganda war, all states claimed moral superiority, which was as important which was an important incentive to comply with international law and accepted standards of humanity. Yet ultimately, legal norms proved powerless against the claims of national security by the belligerent states in the first, in the total First World War. Demonizing the enemy, war propaganda nourished fears of aliens, including minorities, and fueled suspicions, resentments, and xenophobia. Emotional communities at the home front were as strong as powerful as comradeship between soldiers. In particular, the mass internment of foreign civilians reflected the all-encompassing radical quest for safety first, which shaped governmental policies in the warring states even helpless civilian enemy aliens represented the much-hated foe. In the multi-ethnic empires, minorities too were stigmatized as at least the potential fifth column. So were dissidents, pacifists, 
conscientious objectors, socialists and communists, the so-called enemy within became the object of hate and fear, surveillance, repression and internment. The punishment of this reviled group was to com compensate for war losses. Participation in protests and violence against civilian foreign nationals also gave citizens the chance to demonstrate their support for the national war effort, even though civilians in captivity were easy and helpless targets for self-appointed patriots and their popular associations. Secondly, the mass internment of civilians reflected the violent potential of nationalism that was based on the conception of an ethnically homogeneous community. It also signaled the enormous expansion of, of state power, especially with regard to the provision of security. With the exception of the few international organizations, humanitarian as associations were divided by national borders that prevented or at least impeded in interaction, cross-border interaction and exchange. In fact, civil society was largely harnessed to the national war effort as the proliferation and expansion of patriotic societies and nationalist organizations evidence. evidence. When basic humanitarian provisions and human rights prevailed, this was less due to the norms of international law than to the strategies of national governments that sought to maintain their reputation in international politics observed the principle of reciprocity and were lured to the prospect of by the prospect of mutual benefit. <laughs> Most importantly, fears of reprisals against the nation state's own citizens were influential. Thirdly, however, pressure from humanitarian organizations did give rise to innovations in the international law. In the long term, the Geneva Convention of the 27th of July 1929, for, for instance, extended and specified regulations for the treatment of prisoners of war. Yet it was, yet it was only the Geneva Conventions of, of the 12th of August 1949, particularly the 4th Geneva Convention, that adopted provisions for the humane treatment of civilian captives in war. This departure from the almost exclusive protection of combatants in international law primarily reflected the experience of the Second World War, especially, of course, the Nazi atrocities and the Holocaust. However, it was also influenced by the lessons of total warfare from 1914 to 1918 and attempted to remedy the failure of the International Committee of the Red Cross to achieve an agreement at the conference at a conference in Tokyo in 1934, this attempt to protect civilian foreign nationals failed, had failed in 1934. Nevertheless, war violence continued to shape, despite all these humanitarian efforts, war violence continued to shape political and social developments after the armistice of 11th of November. 1918. Paramilitary organizations and veterans associations mobilized sections of the population in states such as Germany, France, and Britain. 
Although the First World War did not directly lead to a brutalization of politics, as Robert Gerbach has recently, I think, convincingly argued, the experience of warfare on the front and on the home front, which Gerbach, I think, has neglected, contributed to the extreme violence in the post-war politics and societies of many European states. Retarding demoralization, paramilitary groups prevented a stabilization of the new post-war states that emerged from the collapse of the multi-ethnic empires and autocracies. Previously, the Bolshevik Revolution of October 1917 had unleashed a new wave of violence. Under the impact of anti-communist and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, the fight against the national so-called enemy within paved the way to the Red Scare that spread in countries such as Britain and in particular the United States from 1917 to the mid-20s. It was the repression of civilian enemy aliens from 1914 to 1918 that significantly contributed to the post-war violence. It may have even had a lasting impact as the internment of so-called enemy combatants in Guantanamo Bay and the restrictions of civil liberties in the United States on the basis of the Espionage Act of 1917 since 2002 indicates. Proposals by some candidates in this year's French presidential elections to preemptively, preemptively intern potential terrorists without specific charges have also demonstrated the long reach of the First World War in defining the treatment of civilian enemies within. So without you know, overdoing these continuities, these examples still demonstrate the long-term, maybe long-term implications of the internment of civilian support enemy aliens in the First World War. Thank you very much for your attention. for this far-reaching overview and uh, we have a bit of time before we go to the glass of wine um, uh, for some question and answers and uh, perhaps I can I can start with one question myself um, you've given the overview uh, over various countries uh, and basically if I can summarize it you find very similar tendencies in all the countries you've looked at. Are there also marked differences? And I'm asking in particular in one point, uh, interning enemies is one thing, but how you intern them and how you treat in, interned people when they are interned is a different uh, question. And uh, I think this would be an interesting test case is, uh, as far as sort of um, the question of how societies function. Is there, do you see differences here in the way uh, yeah, people or societies treated their, their interned enemy aliens? Okay. 
uh, I think as, as uh, regards the internment of civilian nationals, foreign nationals, I think there are some differences, which I at least touched upon. Um, first, in multi-ethnic empires, not only civilian nationals were targeted, but also minorities. They were usually associated to foreign powers and seen as subversive forces um, in states like Russia, um, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire, of course, the Armenians, uh, Armenians were seen as kind of potential fifth column, of course. So this is the first difference. I think the multi-ethnic empires are a particular case. Uh, second, there is, in some states, there is the attempt to differentiate between clear-cut foreign nationals and foreign nationals that are very that were very hard to categorize with regard to them to their national credentials to their loyalties. I, I think touched upon the role of the Slovaks um, in, um, in in the Russian Empire. And, uh, were they really? I mean, if they were, even if they were citizens of Austria-Hungary, I mean, they could have, of course, been supporters of Russia. So, um, and the role of the uh, Alsatians. Uh, Iranians um, in, in France, of course. And Austria is a particular case because the Austrian, Austria, Austrian Hungarian Empire tended to differentiate between confinement and internment. Confinement just restricted the mobility of civilian nationals, foreign nationals, whereas internment putting them into the camps. With regard to the camp life, there are no major differences. Uh, I mean, first, there were few camps in the Russian Empire because what the, what the Russian authorities usually did was they deported foreign nationals from the front line and then left them somewhere. And they could have usually escaped. Uh, so few camps, but there were some camps in the Russian Empire. So camp life was usually very similar. Um, it's usually, of course, restricting restricted mobility, restrictions on the freedom of expression, of assembly, but also, you know, the very bad conditions in most of the camps. Again, there are there are differences. I mean, the Russian camps are, of course, particularly bad, not least due to the uh, to the conditions, especially in 1916, 17. Um, but usually, as a general rule. Camp life was as bad in, in Germany as in France or in, in Britain. Uh, so there are no major differences with regard to life and determined in camps. Yeah. Uh, Chris. Uh, thank you. Uh, Tom told us about the uh, policy, the actions of the governments in various countries, of the military authorities, and also of the uh, public opinion in the press. Um, I'd be very interested to know if you have or you intend to look at the experiences and the attitudes of the people who were interned. Um, one can imagine all sorts of reactions. Were they polarized between those who identified with one country or another? Were there consistencies across the different countries? Were the numbers of people from different countries living in another country's 
of citizens of one country, did that reduce dramatically after the First World War? Um, were these people influential or were they simply the passive victims and international humanitarian organisations then helped them or did they themselves um, contribute to a future um, attitude, a future policies and actions? Did they take part in humanitarian initiatives? There's a whole uh, number of issues that would be interesting. Uh, uh, I'm sure as always with a project, it can grow very big, but is this, a, is this an area that you think um, is worth looking at in more detail? Yeah, thanks for, for your question, um, which was to be expected, of course. Um, the focus of the project is really the relationship between humanity and security. So camp life is an aspect of this, but it's not a, a major aspect, you know. Uh, <coughs> of this focus. Um, but I can spend a few words on this. Um, I will, first of all, I will deal with governmental measures, but also, as I, I think, touched upon this, pressure from below. So, popular mobilization by societies at all, denunciations, defamations, um, Concerned, so-called concerned citizens, you know, denouncing their neighbors, uh, particularly bad in the United States, by the way, 1917-18, where almost all German influence was to be eradicated, German language and so on, and even uh, uh, German uh, cabbage was renamed to Liberty Cabbage <laughs> in 1970. So. <laughs> That's right, and what reminds us, you know. Uh, the remaining of the, of the renaming of, of French fries to freedom fries uh, in 2002. Uh, okay, so I am interested, you know, in this, you know, bottom-up pressures. But as regards your question, these internees were by no means passive victims. I mean, they engaged in a wide scope of activities. Um, they were free to organize their life in camps, largely free to organize their camps in life, as long as they obeyed the rules, of course. So they engaged in education, in cultural activities. Uh, they tried to make life as easy as possible. Um, and and uh, they were supported in this by humanitarian organizations. So they were active, to a large extent still active, and, and tried to to take advantage of the freedom of maneuver that they had in the camps. Uh, of course, restricted, but still, act, to some extent, active citizens, uh, despite all those restrictions. And one could argue, as you indicated, that, of course, help from humanitarian organizations was a kind of double-edged sword. On the one hand, of course, it supported these civilian entities. On the other hand, it, uh, it, it it gave rise, and, or at least contributed to kind of paternalistic attitudes, you know, these innocent, helpless victims. Um, so this, in that respect, I think the, and even in this respect, I think the, the support from humanitarian organizations may have been ambivalent, may have had an ambivalent effect. But they were by, mean, by no means helpless victims, they were very active, engaged in, in a wide scope of activities. <coughs> Were there variations about women? The amount that they were in the 
usually women were not interned because it started, of course, as I mentioned, I think, with an effort to deprive any nations of the potential male nationals, soldiers, in particular, of course, or potential soldiers. Um, so women were usually not interned as long as they were not explicitly, you know, suspected of spying or, you know, subversion. So, yeah, women and children are usually exempted from this, but they quite often, as in the case of Britain, were put under pressure to leave the country. So repatriation was, was one of the measures taken against women and children. Yeah. I was wondering the repercussions on the internees after a war cut. If they went home, were they were any questions about you were sure you didn't shop, especially perhaps if, if they were reservists in Germany or France and you know the argument was you could have tried harder to get out and, and served. Uh, the internees organized themselves at a fairly late stage in their lives. Firstly, because in the immediate post war years, they were, they were suspected as shirkers, you know, uh, and of course, they could not claim the glory of warriors. <coughs> so, memory politics after 1918 concentrated on the glorious soldiers who fought for the countries, this kind of patriotic narrative. And civilian internees were seen as helpless victims of the war who had not made any contribution to the national war effort. Mm -hmm. So they did not really fit, you know, in this dominant narrative, in the dominant postal narrative. And they even felt, quite frequently, they felt ashamed uh, of their helplessness during the war. So they could not, there was no particular input uh, of these internees into national communities after the war. <coughs> Right. Um, you mentioned um, the influence of um, previous um, attempts at internment uh, outside Europe yes. uh, prior to the war. Yes. How far, how significant uh, in this perception uh, was the example of the British uh, internment of the Dutch South African civilians in the South African war? particularly in view of how far this was covered in French and German press, uh, particularly uh, the liberal left publications. Of course, this was covered. Uh, I mean, most experts argue that it, it all started in Cuba uh, in the war of 1898, uh, the, the, the Spanish uh, established the first camps. Um, and of course, the, the United States established similar camps in the Philippines around the turn of the century, and uh, the Boer War, of course, was, was important. Um, I mean, if you look at the, at the discourses between of the, of the experts, they tried to take advantage and utilize the experience <coughs> they had gained in these kind of extra-European territories for the internment of uh, Europeans uh, during the First World War, but they usually, on the other hand, they usually distinguished between non-Europeans and Europeans. So colonial attitudes, of course, were very strong at the time. And in the camps, they they even distinguished between warriors, you know, prisoners of war camps in particular. They distinguished between soldiers from 
uh, from the French colonies or soldiers from the British colonies and the Brits, you know. So this kind of colonial attitude and differentiation between Europeans and non-Europeans was, was quite remarkable and, and quite strong. Uh, so they took up this, these experiences, but only partially. Yes. yes um, you mentioned the Friends Emergency Relief Committee, yes. uh, being one humanitarian yes. organization that helped internees. But I think I'm right in saying that much more of the effort went into supporting their families. Mm. Because for every internee, there is a, a family without a breadwinner, kids without a father, and all that. Now, the, the um, Friends Relief did, saw 6,000 cases of families in, in England. And I'm just wondering whether that's the only one or whether other countries or, or even governments have paid <coughs> any attention to the families of internees. Yes. Uh, that was, of course, a major problem, you know. Dependent family members, you know, who had lost their breadwinner, you know, in the camps, women, children. But again, I mean, one shouldn't over uh, overestimate their victim status, you know, their status as victims. To some extent, they were quite creative in coping with it. But you're right, they did support and strongly support um, relatives and families. Um, I, it was kind of just a matter of focus, you know, in my talk. But you're right, I will, you know, of course include this too. And this was, of course, even more of a problem in the Second World War. Because the Friends, uh, and as well as the YMCA and the International Committee of the Red Cross, tried to alleviate the lot of the, of the relatives in particular. So, you're quite right, we should pay attention to the relatives too. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation. My question goes to the question whether, apart from the political situation that was there because the, the war happened, and the general perception that foreigners in their own country might be at risk, have there really been then occasions of sabotage, of any kind of attacking or trying to, to really do something in favor of the home country where people were in and had that an, inf an influence on the possibly even more, domestic, uh, more dramatic measures that afterwards would, that were taken by the, by the authorities? Yes, there were few cases of espionage, but usually the, the spies were, were, were rather quickly arrested but of course, I mean, these cases were blown up by nationalist propagandists, of course, in order to justify their demands for wholesale internment. And this is a point where, where vested, vested interests come in. So the actors are very important. <clears throat> the security people, the security authorities, of course, took these few cases of espionage as examples of a major threat to national security. <clears throat> and of course, enhance their role as security agents. If you look at the, the expansion of, of security agencies in the in the national security agencies in the First World War, I mean, it's it's remarkable. Um, <clears throat> the expansion of 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 the British uh, counterintelligence service, which was named MI five in nineteen sixteen. I mean, it's just exploding the number of employees. 
uh, and of course to some extent their power. And then there is a decline in, uh, from 1918 onwards in the, in the 20s, and early 30s, uh, of course to the regret of these security people. So they tried to exploit these cases of espionage, of subversion, in order first to create a kind of image of a universal threat to security, and second, to enhance their vested interests and promote their vested interests vis-a-vis -vis the governments in particular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, two final questions. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much. Um, you mentioned the Quakers and the Pope. Uh, could you maybe elaborate a little more on the role of religious actors and maybe also on differences between religious actors and institutions um, with regard to the treatment of animals? Well, it's hard you know, to elaborate on, on, on differences, but of course, religion was a strong motivating force. Uh, as well as for the Quakers, as well as for Catholics, for instance. I mean, I did mention initiatives by Pope Benedict XV uh, to promote peace and alleviate a lot of these uh, civilian internees, prisoners of war and civilian internees. So religion was one of the major driving forces, you know, brotherhood of all men, all these ideas, you know, you know uh, on the part of the Quakers in particular, but also by Catholics. So. Religious conviction was strong, and for us today, it's easy to underestimate, you know, uh, this the force, uh, motivating force of religious convictions, as you mentioned. Um, I mean, for Catholics, it was rather difficult to uh, pursue their faith because, on the one hand, of course, they believed in universal peace, brotherhood, you know, man to some extent, the force of the Catholic Church, of course, and, and the Pope. On the other hand, of course, they had to prove that they were committed citizens of their nation. So it was always, you know, a tightrope walk, um, and even for the Quakers it was a tightrope walk. Not all, not all Quakers were really wholeheartedly committed to the ideals of the universal brotherhood of man. They were at the same time, of course, citizens of their nations. So they were split and, and torn apart uh, in some cases. Yeah. yeah, thank you for a very wide-ranging paper. I enjoyed that. Um, my question is about total war, because you mentioned several times that the First World War was a total war. And because of that, um, this was why enemy civilians were dealt with so severely. Um, but of course, in different countries, there were different to a different extent, this was a war where society or economy were completely mobilized for the war effort. And one could argue that particularly in Germany, there was maybe the attempt to totalize this war, but it was never really a total war because the army did fail with many of their efforts to um, mobilize society and economy completely. Um, and I was wondering whether the differences maybe in the and the timing, but also between different countries, of the extent to which this was a total war, then also meant that there were different faces and different differences of the severity with which um, enemy civilians were dealt with. There were certainly differences. I mean, 
first of all, I think total war was at least a claim uh, in in almost all you know participating states, in all belligerent states, even in Tsarist Russia. I mean, the attempt to mobilize all the resources of the nation in what was even called in Russian a total war was one of the major you know tenets uh, of uh, of national warfare, and. Even this kind of belief in a total war was a very effective one. It did have an impact on the treatment of, of civilian enemy aliens. This is what I would like to argue. And irrespective, of course, of the limits of total war, in putting it into practice, uh, and these limits were, of course, different in the States. I mean, I see a lot of limits in total war in Tsarist Russia, for instance. And there are some historians who have argued that, that, some, that the rather severe treatment and, uh, of civilian aliens and the restricted measures, restrictive measures imposed on civilian aliens in Russia reflected a sense of failure of mobilizing society for total war. So, I mean, irrespective of, of, the, of, 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 of our view of the, whether there was a total war, Total war was achieved. As I said, it was achieved to a varying degree, a different degree. This kind of belief in a total war was still very, it did have an impact on the treatment of prisoners of war and, in particular, the civilian enemy aliens because it all stopped it, as I mentioned, with the effort to deprive the opposing states of their manpower, of the, to deprive them of potential soldiers. And this was, to some extent, quite new in the first world. Well, thank you very much indeed, Anbar Kemper. Um, one of the strings attached to the uh, professorship is that there has to be a book at the end, <laughs> and we are all <laughs> very much looking forward uh, to then being able to read the completed research project. But before we <laughs> do that, thank you, thank you very much indeed for a very stimulating. <laughs>